So after episode 152, I actually realized uh, that was the one where we had the Minotaur versus Centaur controversy put to bed completely forever so that we never have to talk about it again. So that will never come up again, Centaurs and or Minotaurs or anything similar like it. I actually realized I had a question because when it was revealed that the Minotaur was an individual and not a species, he came about from the Queen of Crete and a majestic bull having relations and they came out with this, this large man body with a minotaur head and a bull tail. So he was unique in the universe. And so I, I, I was perfectly happy to accept that. Then I realized there was a question that I only thought of later that I hadn't answered. And I don't think I can get an answer for it. But because he's an individual, he doesn't really have a species name. But we refer to minotaur... And I think what we're referring to Minotaur, and this is where the confusion maybe originally comes from, as a species, as a kind of animal. But now that I know that the Minotaur is unique in the universe, it would actually seem to make more sense if Minotaur was his name and he doesn't actually have a species because he's a mixture of some kind of queen and animal. Being a hybrid doesn't have a name as such, but then... it. Because it would also be really weird if a parent had a baby, even if they didn't, let's say, care for them. Because they built a labyrinth and put this thing in the labyrinth and then fed it virgins. You'd still name it. So either that animal thing's name is Minotaur, or it's a species name and that thing has no name. So that's the point where I'm actually having a little bit of trouble because it's never clarified as to whether or not that thing's name is Minotaur or that thing is a minotaur, which is, I actually think if you look at definition of minotaur, they are talking about a species and not a name, but because it's unique, it should have a name. So now this is, you can see what, happen, what happens in my head. I'm going around in a circle, and it just happens again and again, and that is how I ended up spending hours of my day wondering whether or not minotaur is the name of the creature or the creature's name. So core question, why is the ship the Enterprise in the Star Trek series white? Wouldn't black offer more camouflage in space? Now, there are a couple of problems and there's a couple of different ways to deal with them when actually discussing this question. The first one is this is a TV show. So do you want to camouflage your spaceship in a TV show? Because one of the things they want to do in this TV show to appeal to the science fiction enthusiast is have the spaceship show up on the TV. So the first thing you need to do is make it so it contrasts with the background. The background, because it's a spaceship, is going to almost always be in space. Therefore, you actually want it to be a color that shows up. So it should be a bright color. White is one of those colors that shows up very well against black. 
So that is a real world practical reason for not making the ship black. If I made a black spaceship for my science fiction TV show, there would be almost no reason to show the ship on my science fiction TV show because you would have black space and a black ship moving in front of it. So maybe it would block out the stars behind. That would be a cool effect for the short term, but it would not be one of those things that would appeal to people long-term because they wouldn't be able to see, you wouldn't be able to do any exterior shots of the spaceship. Now, the second point is let's go into the universe and talk about the actual ships themselves. My belief is that there would be no real need to worry about whatever color the ship is. Because we're talking about ships in space. And I, I think the reason you would need camouflage is because you need to hide your ship from an enemy. So that's the only reason we really do camouflage is so that we hide while we're in battle. That's a great idea. I actually, I'm actually on board with that. But if you've noticed, even though the ships are white, they aren't using visual acquisition to target the ships. So what I mean is you don't have pilots looking out the front of the ship shooting at the other ships that they can see. They have computers doing it because the distances would be huge. These things are moving probably incredibly fast. Science fiction often has these ships be very advanced. They would be able to move very quickly. People aren't going to be able to track it over the distance. They can't see that far. They probably wouldn't be able to pick it out because of the background. So once the ship got far enough away, it would just be one dot amongst many dots. So they do what any sensible science fiction thing would do. They would use something more advanced like a computer. Now, the computer isn't checking the color of the ship. That's not what it's looking for. It's looking for a solid object in space. It's looking for metal. It's looking for something else. It's pinging it some way that humans can't. Now, you might have or you might create a species of aliens that could do that, and they wouldn't have those machines on their ship. They wouldn't have like... Uh, radar, sonar, detectors, any kind of thing that you would actually use to track another object in space, they would actually have massive windows because they could actually see. But they don't do that because, again, far, if you get far enough away, you wouldn't be able to see it anymore anyways. It would be too small. So in the Star Trek universe, you have the Klingons, and they have a cloaking device, which is camouflage. But that makes the whole ship go invisible. So the idea is that not only can people not see it, the computers can't see it either. So if you go into the fiction, they have actually used camouflage and it has nothing to do with color. It makes the ship invisible because a computer could probably track an empty space where the stars are supposed to be and they keep disappearing so they can find the ship. Now, the human eye couldn't do that. So it had to be more than that. You had to actually be able to see through the ship so that the computer technically wouldn't be able to track it that way. Now, there's only one other reason. Have you noticed like the space shuttle and a lot of things that are in space that are supposed to be realistic or that are actually realistic? They are also white. But it's so you can see as much as possible because the only reason to go to the exterior of a ship is to try to fix something. So if you can't see it, if it's hard to see in the night sky, which is exactly where you are, that makes it very hard. Now, my understanding is that when you go to the dark side of the ship, it is almost like there is no light at all. So it's invisible. So it obviously has to do with the closest light source being the most powerful. Repairing your ship on a regular basis, which would probably be something you have to do, would take priority over camouflage. Now, the secondary thing within the fiction of Star Trek is that these are not warships. They are research vessels. Now, they have armaments because they go into hostile territory. They engage with aliens and whatnot, and they don't know if they're going to be friendly or not, so they're trying to protect themselves. But the primary role of these ships is not war. It's actually to explore. They're science vessels and things like that. 
So they aren't trying to camouflage themselves. They're trying to present themselves as friendly to unknown aliens. So they don't want to come across as evil or hide themselves or anything like that. Now, there were a couple of movies where they had warships and they were painted black, but I think that was, again, primarily for the drama. That was to create the contrast between the good enterprise and the evil warship that they had created. There are a couple of other things that would actually go along with this question. And it's the idea that we can't see lasers. So when we see the pew-pew lasers or the big long streak of light, that's not what you would see if they were using real lasers. You might see a mark on the ship when it hit it, and then it would just start to burn a hole in that ship. But it wouldn't be the long streak of light. But why do we use that? Because it's more dramatic for the viewer to see. Because if you don't see anything, that would be a pretty boring space battle because it would just be two ships and then one burst into flames. It would be neat, it would be realistic, but it would actually be visually quite boring to watch because you have two ships circling around each other and then just one stops. Because there wouldn't be massive explosions in space. There's no oxygen to feed that fire. So there'd be a lot of like pops and things like that and then it would immediately go dead because the fire wouldn't extend itself into the, into the area beyond the ship. Now that takes us to a tertiary issue, which is sound. The lasers wouldn't make any like pew, noise and they wouldn't make any burning sounds at all because this is against space there is no sound in space so you would hear maybe a humming from the ship that's shooting if you were inside the ship but probably not lasers don't actually make a lot of noise even the machines that make them and they would be on a different deck so you wouldn't hear anything at all certainly not that sound that they use in star trek and when the missiles fire, again, that's going to be two, three decks below the actual bridge. You wouldn't hear a thing. It would just see the thing go out into space. And then you would see, again, a pop, a small explosion. You wouldn't hear anything. And then that ship would probably just stop moving. Or it would be floating in the direction it was already going because of momentum. It's really hard to look at science fiction using real science. Because if you did that, it would be great. But it would be visually and auditorially very boring to experience. Space battles would just not be interesting at all. So what you've run up against is what I call the drama drive, which is things break and need to be fixed just in time to create tension and drama in a story. And that has nothing to do with real life. And that is why the ships in Star Trek are white and not black for camouflage. Hey, Peter. Laura here. With all this animal talk recently, I'd really like to know your opinion about platypuses. First of all, there's a couple things within the question I think we need to clarify. It's, it's Peter here and Laura there. So let's just get that right from the start. The second point is the plural of platypuses. Now, people have always said octopi is incorrect because grammatically it's not correct and it has to go back to the Greek and Latin roots of words. But we all know that I is way more fun to say than S. So people who say octopuses are boring, unhappy people. People who say octopi are just generally better in all ways. And I think this should apply to almost everything that ends with an S. Saying a plural with an I is just more fun. So grammar rules be damned. It shouldn't be platypuses. It should be platypi. It shouldn't be stewardesses. It should be stewardi. It shouldn't be ambulances. It should be ambuli. 
And that's just something that the Velocity Podcast is offering out into the world. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just when people say anything with a sort of a U.S. sound at the end of the word, it would just be more fun. There would be more levity, more joy, more positive feelings in the world if we started using I as the end plural for a lot more words. So just something to consider. I'm not saying that's the answer to your question because your question is different from the thing I just said. It's just the, the question you asked included something that I have always felt very strongly about, that S's isn't the right answer to our grammar problems. I is. Because when you say the octopi, the platypi, the steward I, your face just makes that smile. And as we've known, science has said, and it's complete bunk as far as I'm concerned, that when your face makes a smile, you just feel better. Now, I've known that's not true because I fake smile a lot and I don't feel better. So, you know, proof in the pudding. If I happen to be the pudding and that is a weird euphemism for something, I'm sure that I have just made a mistake. But as to your actual question, what do I feel or think about the platypus? So I'm not going to use the plural just to, to avoid the problem um, that I've just created for myself. Most of the questions I deal with when it came to dragons and wyverns and centaurs and minitai is that they are fictional. So because they're fictional, we can apply rules to them. We can decide things about them. We can create definitions. We can change things. The platypus is a real animal. So because it's real... We have to look at what it really is and then see if we appreciate that. Because we call it like a mixture of animals. It has a duck's bill. It has a beaver tail. It has sort of an otter body. But that's not true. The platypus is a real animal and it doesn't have things that is taken from other animals. It has developed to be its own unique individual. And that is something I think we have to appreciate because it doesn't have a duck's bill. It has a platypus bill. It doesn't have a beaver tail. It has its own tail. It's a mammal, but it lays eggs. It has a poisonous spur. And I think those are things that you just have to respect because no other animal is like that. It's unique in the universe. Now, when people discovered the planetarium, they brought it back to England and people didn't believe it. They thought it was a hoax. And I think that in itself is worth appreciating, that this animal is so unique that people couldn't conceive, couldn't believe of it. Where we conceived of centaurs because they're so garbage. They are such a waste of thought and time and space and then, you know, throw it into our mythology. But then everyone realizes it's garbage and it's bad. You shouldn't spend any time thinking about it ever again. So the question is, what do I really think? I think it's amazing. I think it's awesome. I think anything with a poisonous spur just immediately deserves some kind of regard. And the fact that it's cute and has a poisonous spur just makes it better. Because you have the scorpion, and the scorpion has a tail and a poisonous spur at the end. And sure, that's great. It's almost like it was designed, or we have grown to see it as just an inherently evil thing. You give something a scorpion tail, and we already, we just inherently think that's a bad thing, it's kind of evil, but you respect it. The platyteria is deceptive in that you would see something, and then we have grown to believe that these fuzzy things are cute and friendly, and that we should snuggle them. And as you snuggle it, that's when that poison spur is going to get you. And it's going to kill you and you're going to die. I have actually, in a weird way, modeled my life on the platypus. Because I have tried to hone what innate abilities I have to be a killing machine. Now, I, I've passed my prime. We'll all be honest about that. But I've also tried to be as cute as possible. Now, that takes a lot more work. Because I'm not a particularly attractive human being. But I've used what charm I have available to me 
to endear myself so that I can get close to people so that should I choose to, I could hug and then murder them. So what do I think of the platypus? Platypus is awesome. I think, I think anyone with any sense would agree. But maybe the more important takeaway from this is that if you can pluralize something with an I, you should. So this podcast does not tend to be topical. It's because I want it to be timeless. I want you to be able to go back and listen from the very first episode all the way up to now, episode 150-whatever, and have everything that is said still be relevant. Now, that's impossible. But one of the things we can explore and always be topical, even if it came, comes from the news today, is human nature and the things we believe. Now, it was revealed recently in the news that a couple caught the plague. Now, the plague is not like a term for a new disease. This is the actual plague that decimated Europe in the 1400s. Now, I personally was surprised when I read that headline because I thought the plague was gone. I thought it was one of those diseases that had been eradicated, not because of any sort of technological advance on our part. It's just it had killed so many people that it just couldn't kill any more people, and then it died out with the last people who died of the plague. This turns out to not be the case. There are lots of animals that still harbor the plague, and one thing we do know is the plague is often transferred by flea bites. So there are fleas that have the plague, and they go from animal to animal, and they give it to animals, but those animals die relatively quickly. They don't have a chance to spread the disease, which is why we don't really have a huge problem with it anymore. When it gets into humans, though, just like in the 1400s, it can be spread more easily. Apparently, when it gets into humans, it can actually be spread through droplets, is the nice way to refer to it, but it means if uh, anything from my body gets onto your body, there's a good chance you are going to catch the plague as well. So if I'm coughing, and I cough on you, or I cough on a, a doorknob or something, and you touch it, there's a good chance you're going to get the plague too. So first surprise is there's still the plague. And this is another thing that I surprised me because measles was basically eradicated until anti-vaxxers decided that vaccines were bad and now measles has come back. Now the scientific evidence there is that measles has come back, which would show that the science isn't trying to kill you or make your kids autistic or anything like that. It's actually trying to get rid of the measles because they'd basically done it until you stopped vaccinating your kids. There is just a core logic there. Measles was gone. Now it's not gone. People were vaccinating, now they're not vaccinating. There's an equivalency there that anti-vaxxers don't seem to want to admit to because if science was trying to do something else, sure, maybe they are trying to do something. Let's even give them the benefit of the doubt and say they are trying to do something else. At least they were still getting rid of the measles. But that's not the story. This is a Mongolian couple and they decided that they were going to get up in the morning. And this is how, whenever I hear a story like this that surprises me, I like to think of the decisions that lead up to that moment. So they say, hey, honey, I don't know what the Mongolian word for honey is, but you know, there's something. Hey, honey, you know what we should do today? We should go eat some raw rat. Oh, well, my love, rat isn't that appealing to me. It doesn't have the health benefits of eating raw marmot. Oh, you're right. Raw marmot is better than raw rat because a marmot is a much larger animal and therefore we'll get more meat out of it. So that's where the couple started. They woke up in the morning. They said, let's eat some raw rodent. And they agreed on that. They actually went out together and did it. Now, the first thing they had to do was actually catch the marmot. Now, Mongolia being a, a, a country that still has a lot of hunting and herding of animals, I'm sure they actually are very adept at hunting. So off they go out. I'm sure they trapped the mammoth or they... Mar the marmot, not mammoth. <laughs> they trapped the play, right? Mammoth? No. Um, 
If you eat Mamet, you'll actually gain the ability to write plays that I will never see. That's maybe a fun morning. A couple goes out and catches a marmot together. I don't know if they used a trap or they, or they shot it or they used a bow and arrow or what, but they caught it and they had their fresh marmot. Now they sat down and said, well, you know, the health benefits come from this if we eat it, but we have to eat it raw. We can't cook it. Well, wait a minute. Isn't the reason we cook animals, dead animals? Hopefully don't cook us live ones. It's pretty awful. Isn't the reason we cook animals is to kill bacteria that could kill us? Yes, that is true. But the problem is if we kill those bacteria, we'll also be the other stuff that might give us health benefits that our local culture believes. So we have to eat it raw. So sure, let's eat it raw. So then they agree. We're going to take this thing, this rodent that we just caught, and we're going to eat it without cooking it. And that will make us healthier and stronger and better people. And it might even solidify our love forever. I don't know. So they said, well, what, what bit should we eat? Should we eat the muscles? That's the meat bit. Or let's eat the kidney, which is the bit that actually filters out stuff in the body. So you know there's a lot of bad bacteria in there. Gallbladder, which is another thing that's full of bacteria. And the stomach, which has a lot of acid, but also a lot of bacteria in it as well. So let's eat three things from the rodent, raw, uncooked, that have a ton of bacteria in them, and that will make our lives better. That'll make us healthier Mongolian people. And so they agreed to that, and then they ate it. Now, I can't imagine that the raw kidney, raw gallbladder, and the raw stomach actually tasted that good. Now, taste is not universal. I'm, a lot of people are disgusted by the idea of raw fish in Japan, whereas I personally quite like it. But I know one of the things that before I ate raw fish in Japan was that it was safe. I mean, relatively, nothing's really safe. I mean, every day you walk out your house, you could get hit by a bus. I don't know why these buses are so angry at us, but that's always the expression, you could get hit by a bus. So they ate the kidney, the gallbladder, and the stomach. They didn't eat the whole marmot, which is kind of disappointing to me because that's a bit of a waste. But they had gotten the bits they wanted. Gallbladder seems to come up a lot in these sort of Eastern ideas of what will make you healthy and strong. A lot of the medicines actually talk about uh, sort of vigor for men. Eating a bacteria-laden organ of raw will not make me vigorous. I know that. It would actually probably make me feel sick just from the idea, and then I don't want to have any sort of relations or sexual intercourse after that. So I know it's not going to work for me. But this is a belief system, and it's sort of the placebo effect. If you believe it, it might be true. The problem was this marmot had the plague. So probably a flea had bitten it and the plague was in its system. It hadn't manifested to a degree. Or maybe that's why it was caught because it was the slower marmot because it wasn't feeling well. They ate it and within a few days they died. The result was the quarantine of the area they lived in for six days. And people apparently weren't going outside because they were afraid of catching the plague. Because again, they didn't really understand where it comes from. Just like I thought, they probably thought it was gone. Just like, like I actually believed it was eradicated hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But there is the series of decisions, each one of which seems like it would definitely lead you to the final result of something bad happening. Let's wake up, let's catch a rodent, Let's eat what I actually think might be the worst bits health-wise. Let's eat that and not cook it to counteract sort of the, the bacteria in the system and see what happens. Because I think this is going to make us better. 
Now, the only way I could justify this series of decisions, this kind of logic is that if they had survived the plague, they would be healthier overall. In fact, even then, I think it would do enough damage to your system that you wouldn't be healthier overall. But it might actually induce into you the ability to pass on traits to your kids. Because it is my understanding that because the people who survived the plague in the 1400s, some of their offspring actually became immune to later diseases. Like there are people in Europe who are immune to the AIDS virus because in their ancestry they had someone who survived the plague. So if that was your goal, I could almost accept it, except the problem is if you look at the percentage of survival rate versus death when it actually came to contracting the plague, your chances of surviving are quite low. So unless you think you're special, this isn't going to work out. And let me be really clear, you're not special. And there is your Podcast moral for the day. Make decisions as if you are not special, and I think you will actually live a better, healthier, longer life. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast. Most of the questions I deal with when it came to dragons and wyverns and centaurs and minitai. <laughs> I made myself laugh at least. <laughs>